Coming to the end of our series, Israel's Past, Present, and Future. And today we're looking at this question, what in the world is God going to do with Israel? Join us and find out. In spite of their rebelliousness, there is a future for Israel. And that's why we've entitled our series, Israel's Past, Present, and Future. But what in the world is God going to do with Israel? What is that future? Well, it's laid out for us here in Romans chapter 11, verses 11 through 33. Welcome to our broadcast. This is Truth For Today with Pastor Phil Howard from Valley Bible Church in Hercules. We're coming towards the end of our series, Israel's Past, Present, and Future. Let's catch up with Pastor Phil now for today's broadcast of Truth For Today. As we come to Romans 11, and we're going to do the verses 11, an overview through the rest of the chapter, the thing that uh, you must get in your mind that what the apostle is concerned as this great evangelist to the Gentile world is the Jewish problem. Uh, what in the world is God doing with Israel now, now that he's building the church? Now that he seems to be saving a thousand 10,000, 100,000 Gentiles for every Jew that seems to be saved. What is God doing regarding Israel? Is there anything to Israel? Let me tell you some mistakes that have been made in church history. In 400 AD, the great theologian Augustine, uh, the great Catholic theologian that helped to articulate the doctrine of original sin or the depravity of man and did a superb job. He's right on it. Uh, totally uh, changed their understanding of Israel. He took it that Israel in the New Testament means uh, the church, that we had Israel in the Old Testament and now that we have the church, that means Old Testament Israel, her promises, whatever, have all been absorbed in the church. So that Old Testament Israel, as we know it, has ceased because all the salvation history is now tied up with the church. And so there is no future Israel. There are no future promises. They've all been fulfilled in the church. And that's what Augustine taught. And it swept not only through him, but when the reformers came along in the 1500s, Luther, uh, Calvin, uh, Melanchthon, Swingley, uh, who were such wonderful articulate spokesmen for the doctrine of justification by faith, they too took up this erroneous teaching of Augustine and said, Israel no longer exists. The New Testament name for Israel is church. So that all the covenants in the Old Testament, everything has met their fulfillment in the church. Because now God has a spiritual people. We need not look for a land. We need not look for a king to come and rule from the literal city. And those of us who say that there is a future for national ethnic Israel and that they will have the land and that a king will sit on Mount Zion, 
We are said to have the Jewish problem, which is literalism, that we take these prophecies too literally. We think that they will literally be fulfilled. And this is considered the Jewish hermeneutical problem, that we're looking for a physical reign of Christ, physical land, in a physical place, and we miss the spiritual intent. Then you have another, uh, came out of Britain, what is known as two-covenant theology that says Jews do not need to be evangelized for they are saved according to old covenant teaching. And so they come to Christ just by keeping the law, by being good Jews, going to synagogue, and doing all that they can in keeping with the law, and God will save them in keeping with that. His new covenant salvation is for Gentiles, the church. And so there's two ways. So do not evangelize these Jews because they will automatically be saved because they're Jewish and because they subscribe to the law. So you don't evangelize Jewish people because they're saved. They're automatically the seed of God, so that makes them saved. And this is prevalent. I went to a Jewish in-gathering with Jews for Jesus, and one of the things that they are constantly up against is people are telling them, stop evangelizing Jews. They will be saved by virtue of being Jewish. You don't need to put faith in Christ. You don't need to come to this. That's for the Gentiles. We have Moses and the law and live a good life and so forth, but you don't need to subscribe to putting your faith in Christ. Now, Paul is picking up the Jewish problem, and he's saying, I'm an evangelist to the Gentile world, but I am a Jew. And there's three things he wants to note. In chapter 9, verse 6, he asks this question, has God's word failed in regard to Israel? He promised the patriarchs certain things. He promised Abraham a land, promised him a seed. He promised a king would come out of him, that the Gentiles would be blessed. Has God forfeited those promises? Have they gone away? And he says in chapter 9, verse 6, the word of God has not failed. His plan for Israel has not failed. He hasn't completed it yet, but it has not failed. Then he goes to chapter 11, and he raises the question in verse 11, 1. I ask then, has God, did God reject his people? That is Israel. By no means. I am an Israelite myself, a descendant of Abraham. So he's saying, no, God has not thrown off Israel totally because he's saving Jews even like myself, Paul the apostle. Then he goes down to verse 11. Again, I ask, did they stumble so as to fall beyond recovery? Has their stumbling over Christ been their final act of which they will never recover? What does he say? Not at all. Are you there? Not, let's see if we could read that as congregation. Not, thank you. I can't imagine if we read the scriptures together, if we can't get three words. Not at all. They haven't stumbled as to be finally staying, fallen out, as it were. Not at all. 
And then he's going to give four arguments and four things he wants you to note. Number one, God is now blessing Gentiles in order that he may bless Jews. And he's going to develop that in verses 11 through 14. Then he's going to say, God can bless Israel not because of her present behavior, but because of the patriarchs. Verses 15 through really the rest of the section to verse 24. I can bless the nation now and in the future because of the dough, and it's going to use the illustration, and because of the root. These are the patriarchs. I can bless Israel even in the future because of what I've done with the patriarchs. Thirdly, let me tell you there's a mystery going on in God's dealings with present Israel, and he's going to tell you what that mystery is. And a mystery is something that has been concealed but now is revealed. Finally, he's going to say, Gentiles, don't be so antagonistic towards Jewish people and act like it's over for them. For if God had mercy on you, the wild branches, and put you in the place of blessing, cannot that same God of mercy return and put Israel back in a place of blessing? Now, you may say, I could care less about this. If you don't care about it, you don't care about the Word of God and the God of the Bible. Because what God does with Israel is a foretaste of what he's doing with the church. If God can lie to one people, he can lie to another. If God gives up on Israel, maybe he's going to give up on you. So it's very important to a Gentile evangelist who is Jewish to tell you, I'm not anti-Semitic. I'm not against Israel. I know God has a plan for them. And let's just kind of skip along and see what he says. Verses 11 through 14. God is blessing Gentiles with salvation to provoke Israel to envy, to want the same blessing. And I liken it to uh, you like one girl, you really like her, but she's kind of shunning you and giving you a bad time. So you invite her best girlfriend to go with you to the dance. Now, you really aren't crazy about this girl, but you know it will get this gal's goat. How dare you? Envy? He's playing off these two people. He says, I'm going to give to the Gentiles what Israel has despised and is turning down. That is full messianic salvation. I'm going to save them by the thousands. And as you read the book of Acts, he'd go to the Jews first, kick him out of, kick him out of the synagogue, or a few would be converted. He'd turn to the Gentiles, and it seems like the response would be much greater. So he says, God is going to provoke through the Gentiles Israel to envy. Rather, because of their transgression, salvation has come to the Gentiles. How come? To make Israel envious. But if the transgression means riches for the world, and their loss means riches for the Gentiles, how much greater riches will their fullness bring? Their fullness hasn't happened yet, but it's coming. I'm talking to you Gentiles. Inasmuch as I am the apostle to the Gentiles, I make much of my ministry in the hope that I may somehow arouse my own people to envy and save some of them. 
For if their rejection is the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? So he says, God hasn't given up. He's working now with Gentiles. He's saving them. But I'm, I haven't forgot. And if their fall and their hardening and turning away has brought salvation to millions of Gentiles, what will it be like when God returns and completes his full treatment of them? What will it be like when he starts dealing with them again? It's going to be stupendous what God's yet to do. Look what he's done with their fall. What will he do with their restoration? And so he's playing off. God is using the Gentiles to provoke his ancient people, Israel, to want what God is doing. You know, a good question to ask yourself. Does my family want what they see God doing in my life? Do the people I work around and in my neighborhood, would they want what I've got? Or am I the the sourest looking thing on the block? And I'm the biggest gripe in the neighborhood? Or am I one that is drinking of the joy of the Lord and of his salvation? And God's changed my heart, changed my life, maybe changing my home. Can they see anything in us that others would say, I'm envious of what you've got? Are we showing that off? Christ said we ought to shine like uh, light to the world. We ought to be like salt. Is there anything we're experiencing about God? Or do I dare say, could you possibly be a miserable Christian? Is there any such thing? I'll close my eyes. Is the joy of the Lord your strength? Has he made a difference? Or have you got enough religion just to be miserable? Just enough to be mixed up. Just enough. And yet, he says, I'm wanting Israel to see what I'm doing among these Gentiles. I remember one time Deborah Anderson saying to me, she said, when I hear you folks sing, and this when she's first saved, she said, when I hear you sing, when I hear you pray, in my heart I'm thinking, this is what my people ought to be doing. This is what my people Israel ought to be doing. Why are you singing these kinds of songs when my people don't sing them? And so God is working out this back and forth between these two people, the Gentiles and the Jew. And he says, I'll bless the Gentiles not to forget Israel, but to provoke her, to provoke her to want me again. And then he goes and says, God is going to be good to Israel just because of his dealings with the patriarchs in the beginning. And he uses two illustrations. He takes an illustration from Numbers 15 that speaks that when you take a little bit of the dough at the time of first fruits, it was a sample of what's yet to come. Kind of the first fruit offerings. Put something up front, and this is going to speak for the rest. And he says, Israel, I've already had some dough some of the beginning pieces of the bread. And I dealt with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And then he goes on to say, matter of fact, I've started a tree of blessing. And at the root of that tree are my promises to the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And the branches in this tree happen to be the nation, a believing nation. 
But in their stumbling and turning away from me, I've grafted in a wild bunch of people. They're barbarian. They're strangers to the covenants of God. They didn't even come looking for me. And God has grafted in Gentiles for over 2,000 years. At a future time, when Israel chooses to believe God again, God's going to graft them back in the place of blessing. But his argument here at first is, God is blessing Israel and not given up on Israel because of what he did in their history at their root level, at the first fruit level. He made unconditional promises to Abraham. I will bless your seed. It's amazing to me that Abraham should get such a blessing. He never was looking for God. He never asked for any covenants with God. He wasn't a perfect man. And yet God tracks him down in Ur of Chaldee. The nations have gone away from God. God goes down there and calls him, leave Ur. Go to a land that I'm going to lead you to. I want to make you a great name. I want to give you real estate you never dreamed of. I'm going to bring a seed out of you that shall bless all the nations. And Abraham never knew. He didn't make up any of this. When God made the covenant and confirmed it in Genesis 15, he put him to sleep. So there was no terms for him to fulfill, no conditions. He wakes up. I just made a covenant with you, Abraham. Made a covenant? What? What's the covenant? I'm going to bless you. What's my part? Sleep. It's as dependent on you for fulfillment as though you were asleep. It's unconditional. And we don't like that. God can't make unconditional promises. Yes, he can. Yes, he can. He, he even swore an oath to keep it according to Hebrews 6. He double stamped it. I will do this for you. Well, well what did I do? All you did was believe me. Just faith in me has made you an heir to all of this. So, he leads this illustration now of the branches. If some of the branches have been broken off, that's unbelieving Israel, you, though wild olive shoot, you Gentiles, have been grafted in among the others and now share in the nourishing sap from the olive root. You share in the blessings of Abraham. Galatians 3 says this, we partake of the blessings God gave to Abraham. Do not boast over those branches. Now, isn't that interesting? Verse 13, he says he's talking to the Gentile believers in this church. And you know what he's talking to them about? They have taken on an arrogant attitude towards Jews. Douglas Moo says this, Gentile believers in Rome were apparently convinced that they belonged to a new people of God that had simply replaced Israel. Therefore, they developed a derisive attitude that was apparent. Haldane explained that Paul was describing the overbearing spirit that has long prevailed among the Gentiles who profess Christianity. One of the great sins of Christianity is the way we have treated Jews. Terrible. The Holocaust was developed on the Catholic side by erroneous errors. The Spanish Inquisition, Jews fled all over the Mediterranean. 
Many Jews fled to Portugal and Spain. They changed their last name. Many of them took the name of Fernandez, very common Jewish name. They changed their names, did everything just to escape the Crusades and the uh, uh, forced conversions of the Christian era. They've been many times hated, called Christ killers. Well, what a name to grow up with as a little Jewish boy and say, your ancestors are Christ killers. I thought Pilate was a Gentile. I thought the Roman government was Gentile. I thought seven people killed him. God killed him, first of all. It pleased the Lord to put him to death. Did you hear me? It was his father's idea first. If you want to get mad at anybody for Christ's crucifixion, blame the father. And the father said, it cost me my son to deal with someone like you. I had to crucify him in order to deal with you. It can't be. It is so. That's the only way God can stand to have anything to do with us, is Christ stands between us and God. And he said his predeterminate counsel, Pilate, the Jews, the Gentiles. He named seven different people involved in the death of Christ. So we've stigmatized them, said their promises have ended. They've been assimilated into the church. There is no future. And here he's saying, Gentiles, be warned, be warned. Don't boast against these who have not believed at this time. Consider this. You do not support the root, but the root supports you. Now, can you imagine the Gentiles becoming religious experts all of a sudden? Hey, we've got the blessing. We're the people of God. He said, whoa, whoa, whoa. Uh, I thought you were tapping into the root. You are Johnny come latelys in God's plan. Have you ever seen a believer act like they were the first one to ever be saved and the first one that ever read the book of of Romans? Because those Christians back here didn't hardly know anything. You know, that, that's what we got into the, uh, the music wars. Oh, I can't stand the hymns. Can't stand it. Man, there's no tempo. There's no beat. What were they thinking? We really know music. Oh, do you? Do you? Just shut up. And quit being conceited and arrogant as though we invented the church. You know, I started Bible college at a thoroughbred Arminian free will Baptist school. So don't talk to me about Arminian. I grew up on it. Grew up among Pentecostals. Then I went to a regular Baptist school that wasn't always regular. Uh, Then I went to a Mennonite seminary. German Baptist, Menno Simmons and the German Baptist. Then I went to a seminary in San Francisco so separate that they wondered about Billy Graham. Then I went to another seminary in Denver that was another Baptist separatist group that they barely spoke to their wife. They were so separate. Uh, I mean, they were... Then I go to Dallas Seminary that all kinds of denominations poured into there. And every different group uh, knew God. They did. Among every group, they knew the Lord. And you couldn't get us to the same table theologically over some issues. Election, free will, human responsibility, predestination. One crowd would love the words. The other crowd would be fighting mad. 
and both knew God. And I must say this, what would do all of us good is to meet about 10 other brands of Christians other than what you grew up with and expand your view of the church. It's a lot bigger than us. This is Truth For Today with Pastor Phil Howard, and you're listening to our series called Israel's Past, Present, and Future, taken from a larger set out of the entire book of Romans. As we close out our time together here today on Truth For Today, we would remind you that copies of the series are available for $15 or more. It's an eight-CD set that we're making available to you when you ask for it by name, Israel's Past, Present, and Future. Now, if you would like the entire 47-sermon CD set out of Romans, the entire book of Romans, that's available for a gift of $100 or more when you contact us at 855-833-9864. Your donations are all tax-deductible, and they go to further the ministry here on KFAX. Please remember that. These are donations that we use directly in conjunction with the radio broadcast to make sure that it continues here on KFAX. So bear that in mind as you contact us for these resource materials, or if you're feeling led just to be a sponsor and a supporter of the radio broadcast, we'd love to hear from you as well. TFT sustainers are those who receive our quarterly newsletter, a once a year special gift, and you also have access to Take a Break. It's Pastor Phil's weekly video devotional. And it's all available for those of you who come to us saying, yes, I'd like to be a part of the ministry. I'd like to be a TFT sustainer. No gift is too small. No gift is too large. We'd love to hear from you today. Would you call us? Again, the phone number is 855-833-9864. Thank you so much for joining us today. We look forward to seeing you next time we get together for another broadcast of Truth For Today with Pastor Phil Howard. Phil Howard.